morning. What is salvation? 1 Timothy 4, 16 says, keep a close watch on yourself and your teaching. Persist in this, for by so doing you save both yourself and your hearers. We have to stay rooted in the Bible. We've got to let it speak. The Bible teaches us things we must believe. And and then there are some things in Christian tradition, we move away from that, and there are some things we may believe, we may choose to believe, and, and those things may lead us to be parts of different fellowships, and that's not bad. But then there are some things even inside that that we may also add to our belief structure that's orthodox, but it's not necessary for the faith. What we're talking about in life and teaching are the things we must believe. And part of our growth and maturity is learning the difference between what we must believe and the things we also can believe. What we're addressing is what Paul talks about in 1 Timothy 4, 16, is we've got to keep a close watch on ourselves and on the teaching and persevere in these things because if we don't, there is no salvation for us. There is a catalog of required things that it means to be Christian. We have to stay rooted in the Bible and have to let it speak. The more I study and read my own Bible, the more I realize I'm as much a product as anyone else of a Christian subculture that's loaded with assumed theologies that are multiple steps removed from any faithful biblical exegesis. I'm talking about myself. At the age of 50, I've just began to see for myself all of my own assumptions that I have bent Bible verses around to justify what I want to believe. Talking about me. I've brought those assumed theologies to the text and I've bent the text to fit my theology rather than allowing the text to shape my theology. It's a daily task to repent of my own tendency to bend the Bible around my assumptions. Today, We want to ask and answer the question, what is salvation? And let the Bible speak so that we don't tell the Bible what salvation is. We don't tell God what salvation is. We let God tell us what salvation is. The reason we need to ask and answer this question is because the scriptures all over the place, particularly two quick examples, Colossians 1.13 speaks about God delivering us. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9 speak about us being saved and we need to know what that means. Colossians 1, 13 to 14 says, he has delivered us from the domain of darkness. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9 says, for you are saved by grace through faith. And the good news, God has delivered us from the domain that is dark, and he saves us by grace, transferring us into his kingdom where we are redeemed. That language tells us that we were destined for something bad that God delivered us from, and thus the Bible and followers of Jesus, if you're around other Christians, often refer to themselves as being saved when they turn to the good news, right? You've heard that language. Well, why? Why? Why do we say that? What are we saved from? We need to know how to answer that question. When it comes to what salvation is, we've got to let the Bible speak because the scaffolding of your worldview is at stake in answering that question. 
Listen to this very, very carefully. There is no good news if there is no bad news that requires God to save us. The good news is only good if there is some bad news that it's contrasted up against. Make sense? What salvation is frames the good news the way God frames it. And it must be part of our understanding of all things in order to appreciate rightly what God has done for us in the good news and for us to see just how awful sin and rebellion actually is and how awful it is that we have sinned and rebelled against God. Salvation helps us to see that and if we don't ask and answer that question, we're never gonna look intently at what we've been saved from. Listen very carefully here. I still believe many in the church of Jesus Christ, particularly in our setting, just do do not believe that sin is destructive and that God would actually have to save us from his own wrath and that God can even be angry because we don't have a framework for holy anger. We've been lied to that anger is just innately evil and bad, and it's not. God gets angry, and God has never sinned. Therefore, there is holy anger. I'm not even finished with my sentence here. Packer, one of the things Packer said in his classic little work, Knowing God, the closer you get to walking with Jesus and the more you grow in grace, the more you will epitomize the very characteristics of God, the image in which we were created. And one of those is a holy anger. And Packer's point is when God gets angry, we ought to get angry too. But we've been lied to and told, even in the church and even in sermons, that anger is evil and anger is not innately evil. One of God's defining characteristics, he is a holy and jealous and angry God. And that holy jealousy leads to what he does on the cross to save us from himself. And we don't even have a framework that God can get angry or that his anger is justified. And that's because we've likely never actually read the whole Bible and pruned our own beliefs to match what God says. We've just assimilated cultural sayings and and colloquialisms that some spiritual person said and we've put them into our psyche and they've gone down into our heart and we've read the Bible and go, that doesn't match with this saying, so God must actually mean and we bend the verse to what we've heard rather than letting the verse dictate what we hear. Does that make sense? Yeah, you can answer, right? It's uncomfortable, I know. I get it. Because what the Bible actually says about salvation is very uncomfortable. And let me just say this to you. One of God's greatest means of saving sinners and rescuing people who think they're saved and actually saving them is making them uncomfortable in his holy presence. Like, we don't change unless we get uncomfortable. Does it make sense? That's kind of human nature. When we get uncomfortable, what do we do? Like, it gets hot, August comes, and people wonder why the preacher's not wearing a suit, because it's hot. Why are you wearing flip-flops? Because it's hot. 
Why are you wearing shorts? It's hot. When we get uncomfortable, we shift our behavior, right? God knows this. And when he shows us his holiness, shows us who he is, shows us who and what he's going to save us from if we come to him by faith, we get uncomfortable. And that discomfort causes things to shift to a place of holy comfortability and comfort in Christ. Without that, you're never gonna be saved. Without that, you're never gonna grow in grace. So it's vital that we see and answer this question. So we're going to do it in John 3.16. If you don't even know this one by heart, chances are you're not even saved. I'm just, just kidding, sort of, right? Like radical kids, just kidding, but sort of. John 3.16. So if you'll stand up, we're going to read it together. This is going to be in the ESV today. It's one verse. Here we go. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. This is the word of the Lord. You can be seated. Thank you. So what does John 3.16 teach us about salvation? It teaches us three vital truths. And then underneath those, we're going to unpack them quickly together, and I've got some quick applications and takeaways, one of which which may be a little bit of a surprise. So the first thing I want you to see is that God loves. God loves. 1 John 4, 7 to 9 tells us, Beloved, let us love one another. For love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. And in this love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. John tells us here that God is love. That love is defined by John in that short little section of 1 John chapter 4 as sending the perfect eternal son to take on human flesh, and that God the Father would punish the eternal Son in our place for our sins so that through faith in Jesus, the Son of God, we get all the righteousness of Jesus credited to us for believing in him. That's how John tells us we know that God loves and we know what love is. What is that exactly? Can we boil that down? Well, yes, we can. It's a nice little statement from a a man named Jack Cottrell in a little book called What the Bible Says About God the Redeemer. I've got the footnote there for you in the notes. God's love then is his self-giving affection for his image-bearing creatures and his unselfish concern for their well-being. That leads him to act on their behalf and for their happiness and welfare. So how does God display that love? How does God display this? He does it by sending Jesus on a rescue mission for humans and all of creation. God's love includes both his affection and his action. God's love has compassion, pity, mercy, jealousy, wrath, and tenderness all bundled together. God's love is so deep and rich that I slander it every time I use that word to describe my affection for a Reese's peanut butter egg. And no doubt, it is a superior candy product. We can all agree. But to say I love it is probably a little overboard. Because love is defined by the God, the creator of the universe. God's love is not always manifest in good vibes and blanket acceptance of whatever I want him to accept for me. I can't just put his name on it 
right? And say God likes it and God loves it. It's not just always good vibes. That's not how love works. Love is a primary reality and it's a primary part of God's nature and it's a primary part of who we are. Therefore, it manifests itself in a multitude of ways that are holy when it's moved by holiness. Love's a primary part of God's nature and it's governed by his holiness. Therefore, God's love is manifest in its richest and its richness and in all its distinct ways that differ in how he loves those who receive him and how he loves those who refuse him. And he does not love them the same, but he does love them. God's love toward a repentant follower of Jesus is beautiful. God can love a repentant follower of Jesus and still love one who doesn't repent and follow Jesus and that same quality of love can be exercised and felt by God differently with the different responses he has toward each of them it's love yet it's experienced and responded to differently by God love embraced and reciprocated grows relational affection so that we can say we know God and God loves us and we love God love spurned produces righteous anger that unless repented of ends in eternal perishing and it's nonetheless still love next we see this truth God loves so much that he made a way for humans to not perish God loves so much he made a way for humans to not perish if God makes a way for humans to not perish God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son so that whoever believes in him would not perish. If God makes a way for humans to not perish, why are humans perishing and what is perishing? This, this might help us ask and answer the question, what is salvation? It is. Genesis 2, 16 to 17 says, and the Lord God commanded the man saying, you may surely eat of every tree in the garden, but of the tree of knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for the day you eat from it, you will surely die. There has been a rebellion from, when the, from within the hosts of heaven and in the Lord's heavenly council, and free humans are faced with deciding on the good of living in obedience to the Lord or following the rebellion with the hosts of heaven. And God warns Adam and Eve, if they transgress this one boundary, they will die. By death, we learn pretty quickly in the story that it's not instant annihilation or vaporization. Instead, death is the injection of the curse of sin into every fiber of creation and the breaking of every relational component of creation that will result in the eventual perishing of humans. What does Jesus mean by perish? The word Jesus chooses in perish means to destroy. Don't think destroy as in cease to exist. The Bible doesn't teach that. The Bible teaches that those who die without faith in Jesus will live on, but they will do so under the eternal condemnation of God, and that is what Jesus means by perish. We have a born on date, so we're not eternal creatures. God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit is the only eternal being. We have a born on date but we do not have a cease to exist date. We will live on forever. 
either in the eternal kingdom or under the righteous judgment of God in the place that he created and prepared for the devil and his angels, Matthew 25, 41. Understand this, very important, that hell is not the serpent's realm of rule. That's pop culture, and that is not biblical. Hell is not Satan's, and he's not the king of it. It's a place created for him and all those who followed in his rebellion. It was created by God to be ruled over by God for eternity. God created hell, he oversees it, and its scope and experience match the offense of the rebellion against him. Hell is God's idea of justice for those who persist in the rebellion. Does that make you just a tad uncomfortable? Pop theology has no room for what the Bible calls divine justice, which is one of the reasons the cross is so central and why it's so ugly and brutal and why God was willing to take it upon himself so that all you had to do was turn to him in faith and you don't have to receive that kind of wrath. Jesus gives us a glimpse of that existence with the rich man and Lazarus in Luke 16, 19 to 31. The rich man lifted his eyes in torment and he begged, oh please, just a drop of water because this is rough. And by the way, go tell my brothers, don't come here. And the Lord's response, there's a gulf fixed between the two you and Lazarus, and there's no passing, there's no escaping it, there's no getting out of that. I don't care what the Roman Catholic Church tells you. There's no paying your way out of it. There's no merit you can earn to get out of it. There's a gulf fixed. And once there, there forever. And he said, just go tell them. Do something. Have have a relative. Get up from the grave and go tell them. He's like, they have Moses and the prophets. If they're not going to believe the Bible, they're not going to believe a human that gets up out of the grave and goes and tells them. Jesus gives us a glimpse into that. I give you a oodles, not oodles, but I give you several scripture references for you to go look up on your own. Perishing is a just and right and holy response to the spurned love of God. Nobody sitting here this morning, nobody watching the live stream can ever say they didn't hear, number one, that God is love and that God has made a way. And they can never say I didn't know. Can never say you didn't know perishing is just and it's right and it's a holy response to the spurned love of God. You have to walk over the love of God to get to perishing. You have to step on it. You have to look it in the face, step on the cross and say, no thank you to walk into hell. Which by the way, this is one of the reasons we move heaven and earth to make sure those who've never heard get to hear. We will never debate at Three Rivers Church about whether or not we should be involved in making sure the gospel goes to the ends of the earth. That's our vision. That's what we exist to do. That means if you have to sit on the floor like most of the church around the world has to do to worship, we'll sit on the floor. Because Jesus' mission is to see that every nation, every people scattered from Genesis 10 and 11, every nation has an opportunity to hear this good news of the kingdom of Jesus, his cross and his salvation, and repent and believe before the end comes. It is our task to see that that happens. We don't exist for anything else. The local church does not exist to do ministry To you and for you, the local church exists to mobilize a kingdom of priests to see that every nation hears this message. 
Anything that doesn't facilitate that is fluff. Which is why in children's ministry we teach them domains. Which is why we teach them their vocational domains because it's how God mobilizes church to the nations. It's why in student ministry they teach domains and teach the Bible so that our students understand and know their vocation is the means by which we go to the nations and the Bible has the message that we teach. Everything, Radical Life Group, is to point us in that direction. Everything we do points us to that mission, that vision. If it doesn't, it's worthless. It's cut off. Because this is that important, and this is what's at stake. Perishing. God loves so much, in fact, that he will allow men and women who want to have their things and their way apart from Jesus, he'll allow them to have it. He will not impede you. God loves so much that he will allow men and women to actually go on their way. Romans 1, 16 to 32. I still haven't decided at this moment whether or not I'm going to read that out loud. I'm walking us through it, and I think I probably will. But I want you to understand that God speaks to this. God loves so much that he'll let you have your way. He won't put up a roadblock. Listen to this. For I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. Amen. To the Jew first and also the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Why? For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made, so they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore, God gave them up in the lust of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions. For their women exchanged the natural relations for that which is contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another, men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. That's painful. God provided salvation to everyone who would believe by making his righteous standard known in the law so that we would know what righteousness is and what sin is. And he loved so much that he paid the penalty for every violation of that law in Jesus' work on the cross. And that's why Paul says, I'm not ashamed of this message because it is God's power for salvation to anyone who will believe. Well, why did God have to provide that? Why would God have to pay for the violations of the law through the sacrifice of Jesus? The answer is in verse 18, because God's wrath is now poured out from heaven against all ungodliness and righteousness, against the ungodly and unrighteousness who suppress the truth. 
One of the ways that death works itself out in creation is the suppression of truth and the suppression of God who stands contrary to unrighteousness and ungodliness. Sin ignores God. It has to. Sin has to ignore God. Sin cannot stand the light, which is why none of us, by and large, flagrantly sin in the light, because internally our consciences won't let us, which is why as we read on through this passage, when it gets to just open flaunting, we have suppressed the truth so much that God just lets us go. If you still have to hide it, good news, he hasn't completely let you go yet. So you have an opportunity today to step into the light and receive abundant grace and an infinite runway of mercy. But if you persist in hiding in the dark and suppressing the truth, there is coming a day where he will just let you go into the depths of that depravity, the likes of which you can't even imagine. The knowledge of God is plain, we read in verse 19, because God has shown himself in some manner to all creation, and mankind has chosen to suppress that knowledge by loving ungodliness and unrighteousness rather than loving, uh, rather than loving God. Sin is an active distraction to keep us from looking at holiness and feeling the distance. Need for a Savior. God, in verse 20, we see God has put his attributes on display in creation so that all of mankind has a witness to who God really is, and therefore we have no excuse for not seeking God out. This revelation of God in creation is enough for accountability, but it's not enough to save. That's why Jesus came to provide a saving knowledge of who God is and payment for sin, and that is why belief in Jesus is necessary for salvation. People actually know God, not in a saving way, but in a real conscience way. And they choose in their state of sin to not honor God or acknowledge him with any thanksgiving. The result is that their foolish hearts get darker and thinking that they are wise and are discovering things are actually becoming more and more foolish. In this growing folly, people choose to exchange the glory of God for created objects they choose to worship rather than God. Whether it's an image made to animate some heavenly creature that is seeking to take glory from God like Baal, or whether it's living vicariously through our children, those without God go only deeper into the hole of sin. What's God's response to this foolish rebellion? He gives them up to the lust of their hearts and all the ways they choose to degrade themselves because they chose a lie over the truth. God removes the boundaries for human flourishing and lets rebellious people go after their dark desires. And at its most debased, some of those desires are manifest in the exalted act of worship that is procreation by exchanging what God made natural for unnatural affections. The end result is that God just gives up the rebellious to the depths of where they choose to take their rebellion. And we learn in verse 28 to 32, not only do we innately know it's wrong, we celebrate those who join us in the wrong. Romans 1, 18 to 32, describes what we call the passive wrath of God. If you want to walk away, he'll just simply let you. And he'll give you the natural consequences of the rebellion. But that's not where God leaves the story. The passive wrath of God leads to the active wrath of God. 
to what John calls in Revelation 20:14 the second death. The second death is resurrection to judgment. Every creature on this planet is going to be raised to life. Some for the eternal kingdom and some for the second death. That, that's, that's what the Old Testament calls the day of the Lord. That's a devastating day for many. It's a glorious day for some. And you don't have to have it be devastating. You don't have to. Second death is resurrection to judgment and then being sentenced to the lake of fire to eternally pay for refusing the love of God on the cross of Jesus Christ. You've got to step over the cross to get there. You've got to spit in the face of God to get there, but that is the end. It's eternal because no creature can successfully pay off sin debt. It's not payable. You can't do it, so it's eternal. Only Jesus can actually pay that price because he's the standard and therefore he's the only payment. Salvation is God's free offer of rescue. Salvation is God's free offer of rescue from his righteous, passive, and active wrath at rebels because rebellious mankind stepped on his eternal love in order to delight in his own defilement. Hell is just and a proper consequence of the refused love of God. Third, finally, John 3.16 tells us God loves so much, though, that he gave Jesus so that all who believe can have eternal life. Right? God loves so much that he gave Jesus so that all who believe get to have eternal life. You don't have to perish. You don't have to perish. You hear that? I want you to hear that. You don't have to perish. You don't have to be condemned. There is no place, there is no place too deep that the good news of Jesus and his cross can't rip you out of darkness and bring you to light. There's no state that he can't transform you from. It is arrogant to say you're past the grace of God. All you need to do is come into the light, confess, believe in Jesus, and he will take you from darkness and place you in light. He will save you from his wrath. And all you gotta do is believe. All you gotta do is believe. That's why it's called good news. It's the best news going today. You don't have to perish. God so loved the world that he gave his unique and eternal son to die in our place for our sins so that if we believe, we can possess eternal life. Well, what's eternal life? John 17, one to three says it like this. When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son that the son may glorify you. Since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And this is eternal life. You ready? That they may know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you've sent. Now, didn't we just learn in Romans 1 that mankind knows about God from creation? So how is it that eternal life is knowing God? It's true, all mankind knows God in one regard at a conscience level. There's no such thing as an excuse, we learn in Romans 1. Knowing there's a God at one's conscience is not the same as having a transformed relationship with that God. Knowing that God personally and being known by God personally. 
So in what way is eternal life knowing God? Well, man in his sin has enough knowledge of God to be held accountable for what he knows. That's Romans 1. What Jesus does by the cross is reconcile us back to God by removing the guilt of sin when we believe and giving to us his perfection and a new set of desires and giving us the Holy Spirit to animate in us all of the beautiful parts of new creation, which is why Paul will tell the Corinthians, anyone in Christ is a new creation. The new creation has already sprouted forth in you this morning if you're in Christ. The eternal kingdom is already growing in you. Ah, that's awesome. Now, when God sees us because of that work, he sees only the perfection of Jesus. And now, this eternal life is we have a relationship with God restored that we get to cultivate. We know God. And yes, you have to cultivate it. Relationships have to be sowed into That's how you grow in Christ is you cultivate that relationship. And we've spent so much time year after year after year talking about read your Bible, spend time in fellowship, pray, fast, all of these things. Be quiet, get alone. These are how you cultivate that relationship. And the beautiful thing also is not only do we know God, God knows us. Listen to Galatians 4, 9, but now that you have come to know God, or rather to be known by God. How can you turn back again to the weak and worthless elementary principles of the world whose slaves you want to be once more? Once you know God and God knows you, I you want to go back to that junk. Now this doesn't mean that God didn't know something that he has now learned. God knows all things eternally at one moment in time. Let your mind be blown for a moment. What Paul is speaking about here is God knowing us in a reconciled way of a restored relationship with us and working only to do us good. Because once we know God in Christ, God no longer has an adversarial relationship with us. The dark side of Romans 8.28 is that if you're not in Christ, God is not working for your good. That hits a little different, don't it? Romans 8.28 is awesome if you're in Jesus, anyone in Christ, right? We know that in all things, God works together for good of those who love him and are called according to his purpose. If you don't love God or not reconciled to God through Jesus Christ, he is not working for your good. But if you're in Christ... Now he will only do good for us. The Lord God is the sun and shield. The Lord bestows favor and honor. No good thing will he withhold from those who walk uprightly. Psalm 84, 11. My favorite Bible verse. And your uprightness is not in your goodness or your effort or your behavior. Your goodness is found in Jesus alone. So therefore, God will only do good to you. If it's good for you, he's gonna do it. It may be painful, but it's good for you. Ha <laughs> ha! That's why we got Genesis 50, 20. That's why Joseph could say what he said. You meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. You got to wrestle with that. Meaning the evil people that did the evil things to him, God was sitting over them, making them work it out for his good, regardless of the decisions the evil people were making. You got to wrestle with that. You got to sit with it. But that's what it means to know God and be known by God, that he will only do good to you. That's, isn't that good news? Now is it a wonder why the Bible calls it good news? It's the best news. 
You don't have to go to hell. You don't have to choose that. You can choose today this glorious good news. In salvation, this work of redemption is applied to the cross of Jesus Christ. We learned about that a couple weeks ago in Romans 3, 21 to 26. In salvation, God begins the redeeming work of sanctification for the whole human, beginning the lifelong work of restoring fully all of the goodness of what it means to be fully human and fully image-bearing as co-regents of God on this earth in his kingdom. So how can we summarize salvation? How can we summarize it? I'm gonna give you a quick summary, then some quick application. Salvation involves the redemption of the whole person and is offered freely to all who will repent and believe the good news of Jesus who by his own blood obtained eternal redemption for the believer. In its broadest sense, salvation includes regeneration, justification, sanctification, and glorification. You'll read about those in Romans chapter 8 also. And there is no salvation apart from personal faith in Jesus Christ as Lord. Regeneration or the new birth is the work of God's grace whereby believers become new creations in Christ Jesus. It's a change of heart made by the Holy Spirit through the conviction of sin, that discomfort to which the sinner responds in repentance towards God and faith in the Lord Jesus. Repentance and faith are inseparable experiences of grace. Justification is God's gracious and full acquittal based on the satisfaction of justice and the sacrifice of Jesus applied to all sinners who repent and believe in Christ. Justification brings the believer into a relationship of peace and favor with God. Sanctification is the experience beginning in regeneration by which the believer is set apart to God's purposes and is abled, and is then enabled to progress toward moral and spiritual maturity through the presence and power of the Holy Spirit dwelling in them. Growth in grace should continue throughout the regenerated person's life and glorification is the culmination of salvation and it is the final blessed and abiding state of the redeemed in the eternal kingdom of God. And see all the scripture references I give you there. That's salvation. So what are we going to do with that? So what? Number one, number one, this, this first application may be a little bit of a surprise, and i got two very quick ones. Number one, you need to believe that God is just. You need to believe today that God is just. Salvation doesn't just remind us. Remember I told you this, this is a key piece of your framework as a Christian to have a thoroughly Christian worldview. Salvation just doesn't just remind us of another good news presentation. I hope when you think salvation, you need to begin to think about the justice of God. The presence of salvation in the Bible reminds us that God works justice out. And that justice belongs to him. And it's appropriate for us to rightly work for what is just, holy, good, and healing. We see this in the cross. This is what God does for us. God is a God of justice, and he's not gonna let sin go. We saw that in Romans 1, Romans 3, 21 to 26. If God let David's sin go, which the Bible says he did, he passed over David's sin, God is not just. He let an injustice go because David did evil to people. And God saved him. So why didn't God show that kind of favor to Saul? You see what I'm saying? There's an injustice problem. But what God does is he puts forward Jesus and he punishes Jesus for David's sin and your sin and my sin so that God works out in history and his actions and his person justice. 
God is not unjust. He will work it out. And he is the model for us in his kingdom to work out what is just and right and good through preaching this message with our mouths, saying this good news, and speaking of God's saving of people. And the fact that in creation, God wants us working for just things in all of creation. And that's a sticky wicket of repairing relational breaches between man and man, God and man, man and creation, man and system, systems to man. That's the essence of domain work. It's the essence. Working in your domain is not simply sharing the gospel at work. You do that. But what we are also doing is repairing relationships between people and systems, people and people, people and God. Again, I told you this a couple weeks, and I'm going to keep saying this to you until you start seeing the examples of it. Poverty exists because man's relationship to creation is broken, and the task of restoring that relationship economically and practically in every way is hard and sticky and debatable. And you can't sit in an ivory tower and academic it. You have to get down in the middle of it and work in it to recognize and see all the brokenness and start repairing stuff. That's domain work. That's Colossians 1, 15 to 20. And while you're doing that, open your mouth and tell them about salvation and the good news. That's why Jesus said in Luke 10, heal, that's domain work, and then say with your mouth the kingdom of God, this gospel has come near to you today, repent and believe. Does that make sense? Y'all understand? That's our job. That's justice work. That's justice working itself out. God's not unjust. He's going to work out justice either in hell or people will turn to Jesus and have their wrongs thrown into the sea of forgetfulness and redeemed domains. Cursed domains are going to be brought back into kingdom wholeness and things are made right. It becomes our work also in this justice act of God to learn to forgive just like Jesus taught us to do. When we get outside of domain work and we're working for just things in society, we then have to deal with wrongs done to us. And it is not wrong to be angry and want justice. It is holy and right and good. And Jesus tells us to forgive and then we're reminded in Romans 12, 19, do not avenge yourselves. Leave it to God because he will set things right either in this life or in hell, but he will set them right. And I'm gonna tell you, there is no person in this room who wants a pound of flesh more than me. And every time I do... I am struck in the face with the cross and reminded that it's not my job to take my pound of flesh now. That's crucifying to my flesh. I was telling Daniel the other day, there's a few people I want a pound of flesh from and I can take it if I want it. But then I hear Jesus echoing in my soul, you don't forgive, you've not been forgiven. If he hadn't have just said that. God's going to make things right. And the cross is our reminder that God will not let injustice go. He'll pay for it. Take comfort. Repent and believe. Rest. Second application, don't choose the passive wrath of God today. Do not choose the passive wrath of God today. For anyone who's never followed Jesus, 
turn from that sin. For anyone who says you follow Jesus and you're delighting in sin, turn. Because continuing to go down that road is evidence you've never, ever, ever experienced the salvation of Jesus Christ. And God will let you go down that road. So today, if the Holy Spirit is pointing that thing out, that stuff out, turn today, today. Today is the day of salvation. The Bible says not tomorrow, because you might not get up tomorrow. Today is the day. And if the Holy Spirit is pointing that stuff out, turn today. If you think you've gotten away with whatever it is, big or small, it could be that God's just let you go the way you wanted. And don't you dare stick his name on top of it and call it grace. It's not. I'm so tired of people choosing sin and then screaming, well, where's grace? Where's grace? I'm like, you just walked over it. You dug a hole and buried it. And you're calling something dead and rotting grace. God does not let sin go. He will let you go into it and get what you deserve. But it's not grace to ignore sin. That's not loving. Does that make sense? If my kids are playing in the street and I don't want to hurt their feelings and a car's coming, I don't go, oh, don't want your son to be hurt. I run, I scream, and if they don't hear me, I tackle them, I grab them, I may break a collarbone, they may get a concussion, but it's better than being ran over by a half-ton truck because I love them. It is not loving to let people stay in sin and call it grace. It's not grace, it's hatred. You hate them if you don't call that stuff out because what awaits them is an eternal hell of righteous condemnation at that sin and we let them stay in it and put the Bible verse on top of it and called it grace. How dare we? Don't think that because you've gotten away with it or are getting away with it that it's okay. It may just be God's let you go or it may just be he's given you another opportunity and today may be that opportunity. Finally, don't choose the active wrath of God in eternal hell by stubbornly refusing to repent. Turn to Jesus. If you have never believed the good news, today is that day. If you believe the good news and sin has you by the throat, turn from it today. Turn from it today. Because that's what it means to be saved. That's what it means to live in the gospel. And that salvation is part of our framework for how we engage the world. When you recognize the world needs to be saved, it changes your relationship to it and it moves and motivates us to preach that good news that will save them. That's why salvation is a key part of our worldview. If you believe the gospel today, you've been saved. And now you know why. <laughs> We say saved. And if you've been saved today, you know it. And it's a good opportunity to worship. And so what we're gonna do is we're gonna have that opportunity for us to sing to the Lord in worship. And what I invite you to do is take a few moments where you are, just be quiet. The band's gonna come on up. They're gonna start playing. And when Adam's ready to lead us, he can lead us. But I want you to spend a few moments quietly before the Lord to hear. It's like Tim said, we don't conjure the Lord in the call to worship. That's witchcraft. That's a different team. It's not the team we're on. That's a dark team. That's dark kingdom. He beats you here. 
because he's ever present. He knows you by name and he knows every nook and cranny of your soul. And chances are he's already been at work this morning. Listen to him. Take a few moments to hear him. Discern. What is he saying to you? What does he want from you? What does he want you to do? Just simply do that. It's not a mystery. Just do that. Part of that may be singing. Part of that may be kneeling. Get on your knees. The Lord is whispering to you, you owe me that. Then do it. Don't be ashamed. It may be to lay down on your face, prostrate in thanksgiving for what God has done for you. Then you do that. Dare not let being dignified in any manner keep you from obeying the Lord. It may be to repent of sin. It may be that you need to be saved. If you need to be saved, there's no mystery. Don't need a priest. Just simply tell God you're sorry and you believe in Jesus. And you'll receive the Holy Spirit. You'll be baptized into the kingdom of God. That's simple. Because if you know that's going on in you, work's almost done. (laughs) No magic pill, just say, I believe. Maybe that hidden thing you need to confess. Then that's somebody you need to find somebody you trust and you need to go tell them. Confession is one of the ways to each other God has taught us to work out our salvation. And it's there and you know it. Nobody else knows it. God does. Turn to somebody you trust and tell them. And you'll find an infinite runway of mercy. Father, we pray in Jesus' name that you will help us today to make much of you to enjoy you because you have saved us. For those that have not experienced that saving today, would you bring them? And if you need to yank them into the kingdom, we'll take yanking, but God, yank them into the kingdom of God. Rescue them from stepping over your love. 